welcome to this bonus episode of 28 Dales Later, which was recorded as research for episode 13, Ballads and Bloodshed, all about the Border Reavers. When I was researching that episode, I tested out a new lapel mic by interviewing my friends David Watson, the blacksmith at Gil Cruz in northwest Cumbria, and Alex Soudan from Cramlington, also a blacksmith, who specialises in bladesmithing, and on this occasion, he'd been using David's furnace to create billets of steel that would become patterned blades known as Damascus steel. Although the audio quality is not great, I thought that what they had to say was fascinating, and if you've been enjoying the 28 Dales Later podcasts, then I think you'll be enthralled too. During my research into the Reavers for episode 13, I also discovered that there was a Reaver link with Gil Cruz, the tiny village where David lives, as land there was given to the Armstrong family by Henry VIII. I was already familiar with the place, as I have often performed Norse myths on David's land, where he's built a replica 10th century Icelandic forge, and a longhouse, and the whole place is called Moorforge. To discover the Reaver links after I'd interviewed David and Alex there about Reaver weaponry was a great moment of serendipity, and it turns out that there are still Armstrongs living in the village today. So without further blethering on, Here's my interview with the blacksmiths, David and Alex. Are there any distinctive regional practices within smithing? I would have thought things like patterned tools, so like Kentish pattern tools, a certain pattern on wheels, things like that. So there are certain tools which are more distinctive to an area. And at the end of the day, the development of tools within blacksmithing, all the smiths made the tools for mm. a specific job to, to do it. And then work, if, if the two smiths worked out two ways to do the same job, you might have two sets of tools. But if they live in different areas, then one area might adopt that set of tools, another area might adopt that set of tools. So yeah, what you end up with is tools specific to certain areas to do the same job. Mm. So, but I mean, other than that, I don't know of any particular blacksmithing traditions as, as, as such. I, I know of a couple that sort of date from 1700s onwards, where an apprentice who's graduating from the smithy to go on their journeymanship, mm. um, the master would gift the apprentice a piece of iron. Mm. And when I graduated from the National School of Smiths, my tutor gave me a piece of literally pure iron. And I was like, butter, beautiful stuff to work with. Because, I mean, there's, there's differences between wrought iron and pure iron. It's, it's been purified to literally just a bar of 99.998% iron. You know, there's, there's no silicone impurities and things like that running through it. Gorgeous stuff. And the idea behind it was you'd be gifted this piece of metal that is it's quite valuable. The metal in its own right prior to you know industrial revolution was still valuable it still took a couple of days to prepare you wouldn't prepare it you would have the, the by the by the high medieval area you had distinct foundries just producing bars of iron and bars of steel that would be used as currency bars you know you could trade them as you could for coin um and uh you take this piece of metal and you would make a tool for yourself and it was the idea of it was your master was giving you the gift of a tool in an unmade state for whatever job you needed to do in the future. And that's that's still sort of practiced, um, depending upon who you learn from. Because um, 
a lot of the older hand smiths who do still take on apprentices sort of try and keep these old traditions going, but it depends on person to person, really. Uh, I never had that, but then I was I training in the industry with vitamin at the steelworks, so that was a, a completely different setup. If you had gone back 500, maybe 600 years, you might find differences in niche areas such as bladesmithing, toolsmithing, because once again, you have much more uh, localized zone of effect for a new creation. If a smith in a tiny village in rural Yorkshire comes up with something, it's going to take a matter of years before that becomes the popular pattern that's being produced in London. Whereas today, with Instagram and Facebook and the British Artist Blacksmith Society magazine and a little a little footnote along it all, many evil blacksmiths in rural areas also do dentistry. Mm. People went to them because they were the guy with the pliers. Mm. It's, just, it's as simple as that. They have the tools. Yeah. yeah. But um, I have noticed, because I've, I've studied in Norway and Sweden, bladesmithing, um, that there is a distinct change if you go to a traditional master bladesmith um, from whatever country and learn their traditional methods of doing things. Because um, I, I, I went over to Norway and I was learning all about the composite techniques of bladesmithing, which is where you, you, you create a sandwich of raw tie and you fold it around and essentially the way that they would do it is pretty much the same way I would. We might prepare the bars differently but the end result is identical and really when it comes down to craft, so long as the end result is identical, the steps you take to get there don't really matter. Would the resources have been harder to come by? Oh well if you're talking early medieval stage, definitely. Yeah. Once you got the advent of the blast furnace, which was what end of eleven hundreds? Ah, it's not. It's not that mid twelfth century. Yeah, that's that's when you had um, beginnings of things like shaft mining. Uh, in in the early medieval period, you just had bell mines. People would think, oh, there's a deposit of ore there. We'll dig it out. That was for silver. That was for copper. That was for whatever. And then the majority of iron that was produced was produced from bog ore. And if you're going to produce one kilogram of workable wrought iron, so you're going to make yourself a small axe head, you'd be looking at a day's worth of forging the thing and about a week's worth of grinding it. You wouldn't do that, a small child would, but um, this is around about 1500-1800 um, Before you've even forged the axe head, you're going to have to prep the wrought and the steel, so you're going to look at a day to prep the wrought half a day to take some of that wrought and refine it into a high carbon steel. Uh, before that, you're going to need at least a day's worth of charcoal making to produce the charcoal you're going to burn through the forge. And then you're going to have at least three days worth of charcoal making to produce enough charcoal to do the smelt. The smelt will take you a day to prep for, a day to do, and you know, so you're looking at just for making one thing, if you're starting from scratch and you've already yeah. got all of your tools, you're a week and a half in. Yeah. What are the challenges for blacksmithing in the 21st century? Industrial fabricators. Industrial fabricators, yeah. It, 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 it. Blacksmithing as such traditional blacksmithing uh, at the end of the 19th century sort of dissolved down into welding, fabricating the little blacksmith shop in, in villages. 
turned to fixing agricultural machinery and car mechanics. Mm. It, it evolved into, into something else uh, to the point it nearly went down the pan. It was when in 1976, oh, something like that, there were only like 20 working smiths in the country. Was, yeah, it was a really low ebb in the 1970s. And then uh, been a research of late, uh, mainly from the artistic side. I mean, there's an artistic, it's like mm. what Alec does and things like that. It's the, uh, it's the technical artistic work that people like now that there's a, like an artisan market for it. Mm. Uh, but blacksmithing as it used to be doesn't really exist at much of a level anymore. I, I always feel bad about pricing my work for more than I feel like it's worth. So if I'm putting an extra six hours into just forging the steel that's going to create the blades from putting this pattern into it, I can charge more for it, but I've also worked more for that money. And I that that's really just uh, something I enjoy doing and makes me feel good. You still I've still found that I do get the odd person who's came in when I've been working at various different yeah. shops who say, Can you fix this? Can you fix that? Yeah. Your basic blacksmith and working at that half and on the anvil, uh, it's still the same set of tools at that level that it was a thousand years ago. Mm. A smith, a, a, a Viking smith could walk in here, walk around the fire and make something. And he just pick up the tools and use them. The basic tools for work of hot metal have not changed. There's modern add-ons on top of it all. Mm. But your basic pure smithing, I mean, back then, they didn't have welders. Joints were either, either welded in the fire or riveted. Yeah. You, you know, you didn't have... And it was a lot more technical. Because you had to make joints then, you had to puncture holes, you had to make everything fit, make scarves and wraps and all, you know. So, uh, and now you just get two of them and I'll put them together and put them all well on it. Mm. <laughs> and in terms of creating uh, authentic Viking pieces, how far can you make a, a blade or a piece authentic? You can make it very authentic. Um, you can use the exact same tools yeah. first if you go to a museum and ask for some nails that are ones that are date from the period you can use metal that was literally made originally in the period mm. you know but uh, if you look at it uh, if, you, if you talk about blades we, your original pattern welding comes from sort of the iron age before they could before they could produce billets of reasonable quality steel, they were produced in small quantities and it was a mix, mixed bag of average to moderate steel and occasionally they make a really good bit. So uh, so they're trying to make a sword out of all these bits of scrap. So your original pattern welding developed from that. And so you've got Saxon into the Norse period where they were doing fantastic pattern welding steel and they used the lower quality steel, dried out into strands, twisted together, welded, then the good steel that weld round the outer edge to create a sharp edge. So you had the flex of the not so good steel in the middle and the hardness of the good steel on the edge. But when you etch it back, you get this lovely herringbone pattern up the center of the blade. They look fantastic. Very, very labor intensive to make. Slightly later, once I started uh, trading down into the Middle East with the Arabs, you come across true Damascus steel, and the Arabs, when it's taken from the area, the name of the area in the Damascus area, 
were producing billets of a couple of kilos of good quality steel using it was like a wood steel, wasn't mm, it? Mm. The woods process. And once the Vikings started getting quantities of these steel billets, and they were trading these billets, they were bringing them up, and they were making swords out of these billets because they could make an entire blade out of one piece of steel. The pattern welding stopped, then they stopped doing pattern welding. This was much quicker because you didn't have to weld all these strands together, and you just could pick up a steel hammer out and make a decent quality blade. And at that point, they actually, we had a couple of factories going making blades. Mm. One of the most famous was Ulfman. And the, and they have the trade name of the blade. Then the lathe in soft iron into the side of the blade, Ulfbert. And uh, Ingrelli was the other one, the other man. Ingrelli, in yeah, Ingrelli swords. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So you had two factories. Well, I think one was in Germany and the other in Denmark, but I'm not sure which was which. Um, I, was it, it, I thought Ulfbert, the Ulfbert factory was at the top end of Norway, Sweden, sort of area. Well, maybe it is. Maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I'm aware of my areas. But there was two factories in it, Ingrelli and Ulfbert. Ulfbert was the well known one. Mm. But they, then they started to produce it, and, and we, we, they've actually found uh, boxes with blades in with long tongues, meaning that they'd been made in a forge somewhere and they were being sent off somewhere to have the hilts fitted. Mm. So that's when it became like an industrial process. So, and that's when the trades began separating. One man didn't make the complete sword. At last we laid the blade, it was took away somewhere else. Someone else made the hilts and even so in, in the in, in the National Museum of Denmark in Copenhagen, they've done the same thing with axes. Mm. There was a there was a ship find and um on it they've literally got a rack there yeah. and a bunch of just half finished axes. They've got the eye punch, they're generally rough shaped, but they're not finished. They're far from finished. Uh, but the that's the majority of the work done. It's eighty percent of the work done. Elsewhere else yeah. for finishing. Make exactly. whatever shape axe you want. Ease the eye and the exactly. Ease the bulk of the body of the axe. Put whatever blade you want on the bottom of it. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's it, it's fascinating the interconnectedness of trade. So what weapons would the reavers have been using? Whatever they could get their hands on. They were very clannish and family based. It was a bit like. Late versions of the Vikings where they repurposed a lot of farm equipment, axes, strides, sickles, whatever they could. Heirloom weapons, yeah. really, sort of thing. That's stuff that's been handed down through the families. It's like, what we got, how can we make it mm. more kiddie? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <the> thing, you <laughs> know. <laughs>